As British colonial rulers expanded their control in South Asia, legal resolutions were increasingly shaped by the English classification of social life. The definitional divide that structured the role of law, in most cases, was the line between what was deemed religious versus secular. In governing Islam, law, empire, and secularism in modern South Asia, Julia Stevens examines how Islam and Muslims were regulated within legal domains that managed various spheres of social life. British rule determined that religious laws were most effective in governing family affairs, but secular laws would govern markets and transactions. What complicated this simple binary was that Islamic personal law was very often bound up with economic issues. In our conversation, we discuss British notions of secular governance, marriage and women's property, the role of custom in legal reasoning, rulings around ritual and challenges to conformity, the construction of personal law, the relationship between colonial judges and Muslim legal scholars, how colonial law contributed to women's economic marginalization, the relationship between gender and Islamic law, tensions between Hindus and Muslims, and how South Asia's past can help us think about the present. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Julia Stevens about governing Islam, law, empire, and secularism in modern South Asia, published with Cambridge University Press in 2018. Welcome, Julia. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this uh, Governing Islam, this is a really uh, wonderful book. I'm excited to, to talk to you about it. Um, it does a lot, I think, in terms of uh, thinking about these really big categories that we often uh, kind of throw around, um, like colonialism, secularism, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, great ideas about uh, what we might think of as modernity, um, but really uh, situates it which, within these kind of rich uh examples that you bring. So I'm excited, excited to talk to you about it. Um, we always start though with a little bit about our authors. Um, so can you tell us what brought you to uh, the study of Muslims in Islam? Um, were there uh, moments or mentors or uh, uh, other influences that made you interested in legal studies in South Asia? How did you come to be the, the scholar you are? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think in some ways, I'm a product of my times. I was a sophomore in college when September 11th occurred. And so I think I sort of started my sort of process of becoming a scholar in a context in which there was increasing interest in Islam, but also increasing discrimination and violence against Muslims. I think particularly sort of growing up in the U.S. context, I was maybe less aware of Islam than I might have if I'd grown up, let's say, um, in in South Asia. But that said, I you know I didn't take a lot of coursework in college on Islam. Um, but I think what really was transformative is my junior year in college. I studied abroad in India in Jaipur, um, and that was a really sort of powerful experience. And I also started um, studying Hindi um, while I was in India. And then when I came back my senior year, I took first year Hindi and Urdu. 
And um, I was definitely sort of um, interested in the language. I think I was particularly taken by the kind of beauty of the Urdu script. Um, And I was finishing up college and I knew I wanted to spend um, time back in India. And so I um, applied and ended up participating in the American Institute for Indian Studies summer um, language program in, in Lucknow. And I really think the time I spent in Lucknow, I mean, initially for three months, eventually I went back for another year, um, was really what got me interested in um, Islam and in Muslim culture and, and history. Um, so just a little bit of background about Lucknow. It's a city in northern India that historically in the 18th century up until the middle of the 19th century was ruled by a dynasty of Nawabs um, who were Shias. And in Lucknow today, that history still has a real sort of um, presence in that the sort of culture of the city, um, sort of the way people um, dress up for special occasions, the architecture, um, the language, all of that is is really influenced by the legacy of of the Nawabs. There's this sort of term, uh, Nazakat, which means sort of elegance. Um, And people across religious lines in Lucknow really kind of take pride in the way in which the sort of Nawabi sort of legacy imparts that sense of like elegance um, to the way that people live their lives in, in Lucknow. But at the same time, it's definitely a city in which um, in the present Muslims experience a lot of discrimination. So when I was back in Lucknow um, for a year, I was there during the month of Mohoram. And um, during Mohoram, parts of the um, major sort of Muslim neighborhoods in Lucknow um, get put on, I mean, what we were today in the age of coronavirus called sort of essentially various forms of, of lockdown. And um, the reasons that are given for these lockdowns is the sort of periodic flare-up of Sunni-Shia violence in some of these neighborhoods, but they really become sort of an excuse for the really wide-scale segregation and stigmatization of um, Muslims in the the city, Um, you know, to the extent that people struggle to even kind of get to work if they live in these neighborhoods. And so I think sort of that time I spent in in Lucknow, um, you know, first during the summer and then later um, during an academic language program, um, I really sort of became fascinated by the kind of paradox of the ways in which Muslim culture was deeply interwoven into Lucknowi culture, but that also there were these really powerful drives to push out and marginalize Muslims. And I think those Elements may be particularly pronounced in in Lucknow, but really are true um, more broadly um, in in South Asia. I think something that I've only started to think about a bit more recently is the way in which I didn't at the time really understood this to be kind of also about an element of like, quote unquote, me research. Um, But I am the grandchild of um, Jewish refugees um, from pogrom violence in Eastern Europe. And I kind of grew up hearing stories about um, religious uh, violence um, and um, discrimination. And so I think somehow when I kind of experienced that in a different context um, in, in India, there was a way in which I was sort of both intellectually, but also kind of emotionally um, drawn um, to, to those experiences. 
So I think that's kind of the like more personal side of, of the story. Um, but I think intellectually, um, what kind of drew me to the kind of combination of Islamic studies, colonial history, legal studies that kind of um, comes out in in the book is sort of um, after um, finishing my BA and then spending a summer in um, Lucknow, I then went on and did um, an MPhil at at Cambridge. And as part of that work, um, I wrote my um, thesis on uh, the figure Said Ahmed Khan and his relationship to, to liberalism. And at the time um, in Cambridge, um, other people, um, including myself, um, but there was sort of a, a lot of enthusiasm for the possibility of writing um, intellectual histories of, of South Asia. And I was certainly interested um, in that, that project. That is really what I did in my MPhil thesis. Um, but I think I was also dissatisfied with the way that, at least for me personally, that the, the project of intellectual history as kind of traditionally conceived um, was really focused on elite figures. It tended towards sort of um, looking at a canon of, of writers um, and, and of uh, published works. And I wanted to sort of take some of the techniques from intellectual history, the interest in, in ideas, in debates, and find a way to explore them um, in ways that, that sort of engaged with a wider spectrum of, of people. Um, and I think around that time that I was sort of feeling that sense of um, interest, but also sort of dissatisfaction with the kind of framework of intellectual history, um, I sort of started to um, become buddies um, with a group of sort of lawyers turned historians, um, people like Mitra Sharafi and Rohit Day. Um, and uh, through them really started to get interested in, in legal history history. And I think I brought to that a sort of sense that legal sources and legal archives could provide um, a sort of way of getting at the ideas of sort of a broader swath of, of people, maybe not the lowest um, sort of tier of, of people, but certainly um, far beyond a kind of canon of, of sort of known great men, which is sort of had been the focus of kind of and continues, I think, to be the focus of, of people who work in a more kind of um, tra traditional vein of, of intellectual history. Now, uh, that's, that's a great kind of narrative about how you uh, got interested in the subjects you were interested in. How did this particular uh, project start to, to come together and emerge through these kind of uh, broader interests that, that you were working on? Yes, yeah, so I'd say that um, I was already interested in looking at a legal topic and when you sort of look at South Asian colonial history, one of the sort of really kind of seminal moments is this idea that in the 1770s, Warren Hastings, when he starts to sort of set up what will become the framework of colonial law, that he sets aside this sphere of religious personal laws in which um, uh, people will be governed by the laws uh, according to their particular religious identity. And um, I remember um, sort of having a discussion with um, one of my mentors um, at the time, who's now um, really my beloved colleague, Judith Circus, um, and sort of telling her this. She's a French historian. Um, she um, actually just released a book on colonial Algeria. And she asked me, 
okay, um, so does Warren Hastings use the term personal law? And I sort of stopped for a moment and I said, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I have to go back in and look. And that um, sort of sent me on um, a sort of, um, you know, long search um, to try to figure this question out. Um, first, to, to find that really in the 1770s, the term personal law was nowhere to be seen. And that really, I only started it to see it cropping up um, in sort of colonial legal discourse in the 1830s. And so I think a lot of the kind of beginning stages of the project were trying to trace, you know, how is it um, that this term that is now so crucial um, to the structure of, um, you know, how law is administered in in South Asia, the fact that um, if you go into court um, and you have a divorce case, that um, the first thing people are going to ask is what is your religion so they can figure out what your um, what body of laws will apply to the divorce case. But if you walk into a court um, and um, you're trying to enforce um, a, a loan agreement that you're not going to be asked about, about your religion. And that, um, you know, I was trying to figure out, you know, what happened sort of starting in the 1830s that sort of set this process of legal segregation um, uh, into to motion. And I think by kind of shifting from looking at the kind of late 18th century to the kind of um, middle sort of 1830s to 1860s, the kind of middle um, chunk of the, the 19th century, um, my sense of kind of what was driving um, the, the evolution of colonial legal approaches to, to religion um, really sort of shifted from the scholarship that had been um, done uh, previously, which had made that segregation of the laws that would govern the family and the laws that would govern the market seem like it was self-evident. And what I found instead is it, it wasn't at all self-evident that it was a policy that um, only came about after much sort of back and forth. And then once it was in place, it was sort of constantly problematic because, um, you know, we can say, oh, you know, a divorce case, that's family alone, that's the economy. Um, but then you get into areas like inheritance, which are, of course, both about family and about finance. And when um, judges had to adjudicate those cases, they had a really hard time untangling sort of religious personal laws or what would become known as religious personal laws um, from the laws governing um, the sort of financial um, transactions. And I think partially sort of, um, I really started by thinking about that kind of um, paradox of the fact that on the one hand, that division between family and economy and its mapping onto the division between the religious and secular branches of the law now comes to seem self-evident, but is actually sort of um, hugely contested in, in practice, that that kind of paradox and, and the sort of tension between that sense of self-evident and of sort of constant tension um, and sort of failure um, was then something I turned to and saw um, in sort of other ways that um, colonial law tried to sort of segregate the religious and, and the secular, um, you know, in, also in terms of the way it police communities um, versus sort
sort of um, state spheres of, of politics differently, um, how it kind of attempted to define religious faith versus secular reason, that, that all of those boundaries were both um, sort of really powerful and then also um, constantly sort of being uh, shown to be kind of problematic and, and instate, unstable. And I think that kind of um, tension and, and, and paradox um, is really kind of at the core of, of the issues I'm trying to explore in the book. Now, um, some of this probably needs a little un- unpacking uh, for, at least for me. <laughs> so yeah. um, part part of um, the kind of, uh, one of the threads that goes through is this, this idea of uh, kind of a secular governance and you say that this is kind of constructed through a series of binaries, which you, you kind of already mentioned, but you go into much greater depth in the book, of course. Um, so can you can you tell us a little bit about how these domains began to be defined uh, by colonial of- officials, these sets of binaries? Um, and it doesn't just apply to, to Muslims, but how, do, how is this set up in relation to Islam? And then what are the, the logics, I guess, that supported these types of divisions? Yeah, so um, to kind of reiterate, I mean, some of the bio- binaries that I'm exploring the in the book are sort of um, the um, boundary that is constructed between religion and reason, between family and the economy, and between community and state. And I argue that the sort of legal problem that sort of sets in motion the process of trying to set up these boundaries, both kind of within the law, but then with repercussions well outside the the sphere of the law, is that sort of starting in the 1830s, um, the British are interested in exerting a much more sort of comprehensive organized, totalizing form of political control over South Asia. Um, And this is partially because they've now been in India for a fair amount of time, but it's also because of shifting ideas about um, what it means to effectively govern um, within kind of European thought. And I trace the ways in which this is a period in which ideas of sovereignty are shifting in Europe towards a much more territorial model um, in which within a kind of given geographical space, there should really only be one sovereign. And so sort of the way this idea kind of trickles down into the context of everyday colonial rule is that suddenly British officials in India are concerned about the fact that when they look at the legal system that is actually in place from the 18th century and into the early decades of the 19th century in colonial India, it's a, it's a hodgepodge. Um, a lot of it is sort of um, figured out on the ground. There is a sort of, um, sometimes they bring in English legal precedents. Um, they also have um, Hindu and Muslim legal scholars, um, you know, muftis um, sitting, advising the colonial courts. And there's a lot of sort of ad hoc kind of um, picking and choosing from these different kind of sources of, of law. And um, by the 1830s, this starts to look to the British like a a problem in a way that it hadn't seemed problematic before. And so basically, they need to figure out, okay, um, if we're only going to have one system of law, or at least a system that is more sort of organized and hierarchical and, and clear about which body of laws applies when, you know, what 
what body of law is is that going to to be? And so I think they both um, are trying to justify um, bringing in a lot more English um, uh, legal influence um, and sort of marginalizing the sort of um, really like continued influence of sort of um, what I would call Muslim legal culture on the administration, um, including in in colonial courts. I mean, uh, from the Mughals through Mughal successor states, um, you have sort of, um, this isn't what we think of as sort of canonical Islamic law, but um, these are um, sort of states that are headed by Muslims who are drawing on sort of a rich history of kind of Islamic legal practice. And that's still sort of part of the kind of, um, you know, everyday practice in, in colonial courts. And suddenly the British kind of need to be able to kind of justify moving those practices uh, aside, bringing in English law. So they start to really sort of draw um, this distinction between um, the kind of supposed rationality of of English law and um, beginning to refer to um, Muslim law as irrational, as sort of somehow only really appropriate for people um, who um, are are Muslims and who believe in Islam. Um, And um, so that there's sort of, that's where I think you start to see um, the formation of this sort of boundary between um, Islamic faith and sort of secular reason, even though English law is, of course, um, influenced by Christianity as well. But that fact is sort of, um, you know, conveniently um, sort of disguised in these processes. But then I think there is this sort of competing impulse that the British don't actually think that they can just totally get rid of all Indian um, legal influence um, and sort of completely rule um, India through a kind of version of imported English law. Um, they, They believe that Indians are sort of deeply attached to their religious beliefs. And so they sort of start to think, okay, well, this project of kind of bringing in and constructing a a new legal system that's um, based on kind of English legal principles, we're going to have to sort of make exceptions to that. Um, And so the process of deciding, like, what are the areas that are going to be um, exceptions is when you start to see this pulling out of a new sort of sphere of um, family law and sort of attaching that body of law to um, sort of religious uh, law. Um, But the the deciding sort of what what is within the realm of of the family is a process that is actually takes sort of decades of, of back and forth. So for example, um, you know, fairly um, well into this process, um, there are still colonial officials who, for example, are arguing that, you know, maybe employment um, should actually be covered um, uh, by religious laws, or at least the sort of religion of the employer and the employee are sort of important to understanding, you know, what contract might exist between them in terms of the sort of labor relation. And this seems like really crazy maybe to us now, But if you think that a lot of labor happened within households, um, you can see how, you know, what is the distinction between your relationship, you know, to your wife versus your domestic servant, um, that that really is is only a distinction that we start to see solidify in in the 19th century. And that process of of solidifying that distinction between who is a servant, um, someone who is a laborer, and who is a member of of the family, um, that that is also entangled with this sort of emergence of of the division of religious personal law from sort of other branches of the law that are conceived as as, as secular. Now, um, 
a lot of what you do in the book um, would, would probably be uh, labeled by many as, as thinking about gender, mm-hmm. um, often because you're, you're dealing with uh, cases that focus on women. And um, th- this is kind of more general thing. I, I was listening to this lecture by Keisha Ali the other day, and she was saying that often uh, this kind of scholarship that focuses on women uh, and Islamic law or women and something um, always uh, or often gets kind of pigeonholed as this is uh, a work on gender, right? As opposed to being this is a work on Islamic law that everybody in Islamic law should read, something like this. I hope I'm communicating this idea yeah. effectively. So I'm just, I'm just wondering your thoughts um, on uh, thinking about gender as an analytic category um, in our scholarship, and then uh, how thinking about gender can help us think about something like Islamic law or any other end subject uh, in kind of fruitful and productive ways, because your book seems to, to do that. It seems to, to be a, a book very important about Islamic law that happens to focus on uh, women. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the reasons that women play such a big role in my book is because if you, I mean, think just today, like if you go and do a Google search and, um, you know, enter Islamic law and hit, you know, the Google tab for for news and start reading through the headlines, um, chances are a lot of the stories are going to involve women. Um, And so partially I wanted to know, you know, why that that was. And I think the fact that women come to be seen as sort of representative of the domestic sphere, even though, of course, the family is made up of equal numbers of of men and women, somehow women are are seen as sort of more central um, uh, to it. But I also thought that because women sort of become the, the target of how both sort of colonial law defines um, sort of its relationship to Islamic law um, through sort of this intense engagement with, um, particularly with marriage and divorce cases, and to some extent also with inheritance cases, but also sort of Muslims in part kind of pulled along by that also start to kind of see questions related to, to women um, as also sort of central um, to religious identity, that that position of centrality um, has lots of disadvantages um, for, for women. um, But it also sort of puts them in an almost kind of unique position um, to sort of talk back um, to some of these dominant discourses, um, to kind of be uh, subversive, um, and to sort of articulate logics um, that go against um, the sort of um, dominant logic, either of colonial law or sometimes also of sort of reformist discourses that are being written by Muslim men. And and sometimes this is explicit um, in terms of, um, you know, one of the, the figures who I have become fascinated with, who sort of appears in in my book, is uh, Cornelia Sarabdi, um, who is the first woman who is um, uh, admitted into the bar, both in India and in in Britain. Um, and uh, she um, sort of um, has, you know, many many insights on sort of um, women's position in the the law. But one of the arguments she makes is that colonial law has these features that purport to. Pre- 
protect women who observe Purda. Um, and these protections include that um, if a woman who observes Purda makes a contract with someone else, the courts um, sort of look at that contract with a kind of particular suspicion. And if it seems like um, it's to the woman's sort of detriment that maybe she didn't sort of under understand what she was um, signing onto, that the courts are much more likely to kind of overturn that, that contract. And in the logic of the colonial legal system, this is protective. And one of the things that um, Sarabji points out is that actually this protection is really detrimental to women because it means that it's much harder for them to actually make contracts because people are hesitant to make a contract with a woman if they think that the courts might overturn it. So it's it's figures like Sarabji who explicitly actually, I think, talk back to the logics of, of the colonial legal system. Um, but also sometimes it's just looking at the positionality of women within this legal system that I think makes um, possibilities for sort of critiquing it and thinking, again, Against, against its grain. So one of the cases that I became um, really interested in and ended up writing quite extensively about in the book um, is a legal dispute um, between um, a Muslim couple um, and, and the wife in this couple, um, her name is, is um, Shamsa Nissa. And um, in this case, um, Shamsa Nissa and her husband, uh, Bazlur Rahim, have a dispute um, both over their living arrangements. Um, she doesn't want to live with him anymore, um, but also over their finances. Um, Shamsunissa thinks that her husband, who's in a lot of financial trouble, is actually trying to steal um, her money. And she brings a lot of sort of wealth um, to, to the marriage. And so they end up in, in court having this dispute both over um, whether um, the husband has a right um, to make his wife um, come back and live with him. Um, and also, um, you know, what to do with the fact that um, the husband seems to be stealing um, the, the wife's uh, money. And um, the, the court in deciding this um, eventually sort of takes, um, divides the case in, in two and sort of at this micro level, sort of marrying the division of the legal system more broadly, the part of the case which the court labels as um, domestic, this dispute over whether or not Shamsunissa has to live um, with her husband, it says that it's going to de uh, decide it by um, religious law. Um, in fact, um, there's very little Islamic law in, in the actual decision, but it's sort of labeled as, as religious law. And to understand how that happens, uh, maybe go read my book because it's, that is a kind of complicated aspect of the story. But anyway, the sort of like conjugal rights, the kind of is the wife, um, uh, required to live with her husband, that is sort of made to look like it comes under religious personal law. And then the dispute over whether the husband is stealing the money from his wife, that is made to look like it's being governed um, by um, sort of um, laws of, of, of contract and this sort of idea of um, the sort of extra protection that the colonial legal system is going to extend to uh, women who observe Purda, despite the fact that Islamic law treats women as sort of equal contracting agents. And the court actually recognizes this and, and puts aside Islamic law and says, no, you know, we are going to come up with our own system because this is really a financial transaction and therefore we really don't have to look at, at is, is Islamic law. So there you have the kind of logic of, of the legal decision. But then if you just sort of think yourself into the position of Shamsunissa, suddenly that logic, I think, collapsed because more or less what the, the court ends up doing is saying that Shamsunissa um, has to go back and live with her thieving husband. 
And if you think about the perspective of a woman who is expected, is being ordered by the court to, to live with her husband who is stealing her money, you know, even if the court has sort of written some, you know, decision that is supposed to protect her financially, that's no type of, of protection. And um, so I think it is, you know, through the perspective of, of women like Shamsun Nissa that we, we see how um, artificial the boundary between family economy um, that the courts are trying to trying to construct, how artificial that that is, and how the kind of um, that that sort of artificiality and the kind of weird logics that it sort of imparts have kind of real costs, um, uh, you know, f- for many different groups, but particularly um, for for women. And you can kind of see in in Shamsunissa's case, kind of bringing together Shamsunissa's perspective and also sort of um, the insights of Cornelia Sarabji that you know there's at once a kind Kind of physical vulnerability. I mean, the idea of like what is actually going to happen um, to Shamsunissa when she has to go back and, and live with her thieving husband, but then also more largely how this sort of purported protection of, of women um, that actually sort of um, disables them as economic actors has real sort of financial costs um, for women in terms of their ability to engage in, in market transactions. So I think it is, you know, basically, you know, this isn't my interest in sort of taking the perspective and kind of bringing into the story figures like Shamsun Nissa and Cornelia Sarabji is, is not just because, you know, I'm a woman and I'm interested in women's stories, but that I actually think that there is like a critical analytical leverage um, that comes from centering um, their perspective um, that um, sort of works um, against a, a way of writing history in which those um, stories and perspectives have often been moved to the, the margins. Um, so, you know, I definitely do think of myself as a historian of, of gender, but um, I didn't necessarily, um, you know, clearly pitch the book in terms of like the the title as a kind of, you know, the word gender doesn't appear in the title of the book, um, in part because I really do think that, you know, I'm using gender as an analytical tool that really um, goes beyond um, uh, something that would be sort of narrowly um, sort of labeled as, as some, you know, somehow only relevant to to women. Yeah. And I think thereby, Right. is part of the argument that if it was labeled something like, you know, gender in Islamic law, you know, then then that would automatically uh, make its reception uh, kind of uh, biased in a way. Yeah. And I think also, um, you know, uh, gender in the book is sort of foregrounded um, through the perspective of, of women, but it is also there um, through thinking about the gendered politics of um, Muslim masculinity. So um, one of the chapters of, of the book looks at um, sort of the 1920s, um, which is a period in India of sort of heightened um, tensions around uh, material that is produced that is insulting um, to um both Muslim and and Hindu religious sentiment. And in this context, there's a series of, um, you know, really offensive um, books that are published about the life of of the prophet that, again, actually focus on the sexuality of of the the prophet. Um, But also the way in which the sort of reaction um, to those books, the way that it is portrayed in the mainstream, dominantly Hindu press, is often through a kind of caricatured version of 
of Muslim rage. And the subject um, who is portrayed as being enraged in that coverage is of a sort of Muslim man who is unable to kind of control his his sentiments. And so I think that, um, you know, the way in which um, sort of gender dynamics are used um, to sort of stigmatize and marginalize Muslims um, both has elements that um, work through the, the positionality um, and, and the way in which certain ideas of sort of Muslim femininity are kind of imposed from the outside, but also definitely works through um, sort of certain um, discourses that kind of label um, Muslim masculinity as sort of malignant and um, sort of um, irrational. And, and we see this again um, very much, um, you know, in, in the present. So um, for those um, listeners, um, who may not be familiar with sort of recent events in, in India. Over the last few years, India has had um, a very intense um, set of debates about the practice of uh, triple talaq, um, or in which a, a husband can divorce his wife by saying talaq um, three times. Um, and um, these sort of debates came to head with a Supreme Court decision um, in which triple talaq was um, ruled illegal in, in India. And then last summer, um, the Supreme Court decision was sort of weaponized um, with the passage of a new law that made triple talaq not just illegal, but made it a criminal offense. So that a Muslim man who was accused of saying triple talaq could actually be put in, in prison. And um, I think a lot of critical observers of um, sort of the shifts in, in law um, said, you know, if this is already legal, what is the need to criminalize triple talaq? Um, and that this really isn't about helping Muslim women, but it is about a sort of um, law that then um, sort of infuses into everyday discourse in which Muslim men are being portrayed as sort of problematic of needing um, a sort of more intense um, regime of sort of discipline. Um, and, and so I think that the kind of gendered politics of um, the kind of secular marginalization of, of Muslims is a story that is both about um, sort of um, the way that works through um, uh, sort of gendered discourses of, of femininity and of, of, of masculinity. So I think that's particularly why it's important that um, sort of the scholarship on gender and Islam not be kind of written off as, oh, this is women, women's studies. And I wish we were beyond that, but I think it is it's <laughs> true that often that kind of way of dividing up fields, um, you know, still unfortunately does occur. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really well put too. Um, I, I've done a terrible job of kind of keeping us uh, on the structure of your book. So uh, for, okay. for listeners uh, <laughs> that are interested in the book, we're, we're kind of uh, going back and forth. Um, but one, one of the other chapters, uh, that, uh, also kind of disrupts this, um, kind of personal, secular, religious, secular type of divide, um, is the role of custom in legal reasoning. Um, so could you, you talk a little bit about this? How does, how does this idea of incorporating, uh, customary law, uh, kind of challenge this neat division and how was it used in legal contexts? Um, and this also relates to um, the, the, this kind of uh, forms of patriarchal social norms that you also uh, were just talking about. Yeah. So um, 
In addition to the sort of, um, you know, these two different branches of sort of the secular body of, of law in colonial India, the religious personal laws, um, there actually emerges uh, yet another strand of this sort of many-headed legal hydra, um, which is that um, the colonial courts recognize custom as a sort of third potential source of, of law. Um, and this is particularly um, true in certain regions of, of India, um, particularly if we're looking at um, areas with uh, large Muslim populations um, in the Punjab. Uh, and um, basically what the courts say is that in these regions, um, Muslims don't necessarily actually um, historically follow what they see as the kind of orthodox version of, of Islamic law, but instead in, incorporate various um, customary practices. But what I really try to show is that we need to kind of step back from, you know, what's being said by the colonial administrators, the reasoning for the system, and kind of look at the larger kind of macroeconomic context. Um, And for Punjab, um, this is in part that Punjab is the so-called breadbasket. It is um, an incredibly important um, producer of agricultural commodities, um, both for the rest of India, but also particularly um, for kind of the global uh, economy. And because of this, it's really important to the colonial administration that I think they have sort of maximum flexibility um, in order to manipulate land laws as well as inheritance, which is deeply entangled um, with um, sort of uh, the the legal structures that govern um, agricultural property in a way that is sort of um, most conducive um, to producing um, the the form of agricultural um, production that is sort of, you know, um, very important in the region, which is sort of, um, you know, a productive household unit that is headed by a a man um, and, um, you know, relatively large um, land holdings. And so what this means is instead of sort of dividing, um, you know, family property among all of of the children and giving a portion to women, which is what you would see happen under a sort of classical interpretation of Islamic inheritance law, is that the colonial administration says, oh, uh, actually, by custom practice, women are not given um, property. And so in the Punjab, Muslim women do, do not have access to, to agricultural land. And I think that you know, this actually helps to support um, a larger kind of economic um, system in, in the region um, that is linked to kind of um, larger patterns of, of colonial economy. Um, so I think, um, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to show in that chapter on, on custom is that if the, again, the logic of colonial secularism tries to make us see religious law as sort of separate from questions of economy. And what I'm trying to show in that chapter is if we sort of look at, um, these issues with this kind of critical perspective that actually, you know, what they're doing with religious law, in this case, limiting it in the Punjab by incorporating this third strand of customary law um, is something that we can only really fully understand if we kind of look at those decisions um, in terms of the larger kind of economic processes that are at work, um, you know, both at the regional, um, the all India, and then at the the kind of global imperial scale. Hmm. And you you then address uh, this idea of kind of the the policing of um, of ritual practice between uh, different types of interpretive uh, groups uh, internally between Muslims. 
Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, the kinds of uh, of ritual conformity that were being challenged at this moment? You, you ad- address this specific case, but you also talk a little bit more broadly about uh, other things going on at the moment. And then um, how, how does the colonial court uh, mediate ritual difference among Muslims? And, and then how do Muslims respond to this? Yeah, so I provided a lot of kind of, I think, or at least uh, some of the kind of um, macro historical context on the on the colonial side. Uh, and to step back and think about kind of, um, you know, what are the forces that are sort of shaping the trajectory of Muslim intellectual and, and, and legal life from the kind of late 18th century um, forward. I mean, really, even before um, sort of the colonial impact is, is a major force, um, this is a period of sort of crisis in authority uh, among Muslims, dating to the sort of collapse of, of the Mughal Empire. It's a period of uh, rising religious reform movements um, and sort of the questioning of, um, you know, particularly um, the, the the sort of legal principle of, of taklid or following established um, uh, authority. Um, there are a lot of um, Muslim reformers are beginning to um, sort of call for greater ijtihad to question um, the obligation to follow a single um, school of, of law. And as I said, I think that's partially because of the sort of crisis of political authority that, um, you know, happens with the breakdown of the sort of Mughal political order. And then moving into the 19th century, it is sort of accelerated by the arrival of of the printing press, which is partially a story of of colonialism. But um, printing is also sort of exploding um, in regions that, you know, don't come under formal colonial rule until the kind of middle of the 19th century. The the press is already there kind of in the early 19th um, century. And what this means is that, you know, just as a at this point in which you're kind of having a crisis of authority, a lot more Muslims are beginning to have access um, to uh, religious texts uh, via printed medium. And, and while literacy is still very low, um, it's a lot easier to get a, a printed copy of some of these texts than it was to get a, a manuscript copy. And so you sort of have an exploding of religious debate that is happening um, from the sort of late 18th century being accelerated in the early 19th century by the arrival of the the printing press. And this really um, embraces a wide range of of sort of issues, um, but this sort of question of of taklid, whether you're supposed to sort of follow a single school of law or whether you can kind of potentially choose between different schools of law, one of the areas um, where it sort of crystallizes by the middle of the 19th century is around um, the the uh, the practice of of prayer and the kind of sequences of of actions that accompany um, the the daily prayer and one of the ways that people sort of signal um, their break with taklid. Um, in the case of South Asia, it's often um, the the Hanafi school of law is by embracing a slight alteration um, in the way uh, they perform um, the the daily salat. Um, and you and and this is when you think about sort of it playing out in the context of communal worship um, in mosques um, is a kind of very um, charged way of kind of expressing these intellectual debates because it's something that is is embodied and you know you're standing behind someone and then they start to pray in in a different way. Um, 
it's very disruptive. And so you start to see sort of popping up in the 1860s, 1870s, um, the sort of cases that are arriving in court in which um, members of Moss are attempting to um, basically um, kick out people who want to embrace these alternative um, uh, sort of alterations um, to, to the prayer performance of, of prayer. Um, and, and basically, you know, at this point, um, colonial courts could have either, um, you know, allowed the communities to bar people or um, they could have done nothing. And, and for the most part, they, they do nothing. And this is, of course, sort of celebrated as, you know, colonial secularism. You know, we're not interfering in, in religion. But what I try to argue is that actually you have this policy um, that is being sort of trumpeted as non-interference, but is in fact, um, I would argue, uh, a form of interference in religious life in that sort of the inaction of, of not providing a kind of mechanism of dealing with these rising um, tensions between different kind of sects um, actually sort of creates a, a combustive system. And it's not just that the colonial courts say, okay, we're not going to step in and sort of uh, resolve the, the conflicts between, um, you know, people who are praying in, in different ways, but we're actually going to prevent Muslims from resolving those conflicts. We're not going to allow Muslims to say, look, you know, if you decide that you want to pray in a different way, maybe Maybe you should find found your own mosque. Um, we're going to say that that you can't do that because it violates um, sort of a, a colonial policy of, of non-interference. So, I mean, I think what I'm really trying to show in that chapter is that um, this sort of purported committed commitment to kind of secular governance in the form of, of, of non-interference actually plays a role in increasing um, religious violence, particularly um, among Muslims. Um, them themselves. Um, so I think, you know, again, a lot of what the book is, is trying to do is to sort of, you know, show how a certain logic is constructed by um, secular legal governance, and then kind of read that against the grain to show how actually precisely what is promised by this form of governance is, is, is not what it delivered. It, it, it promises sort of neutrality and to sort of, um, you know, peace between different religious groups in, in India. And it actually kind of produces um, the, the opposite of kind of stoking greater religious conflict. Now, uh, towards the end of the book, you, you look at how um, an Islamic economy might be possible. Um, so uh, how, how did Muslim intellectuals kind of rethink economic models for South Asia? And then um, how did these work out in kind of terms of concrete political reform? Yeah. So I think because a lot of the book was interested in this process of sort of how religion began, becomes sort of so... Um, strongly associated with the family and dissociated from the economy. I was sort of drawn to this um, body of work that gets produced in, in India sort of in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, in which um, you see Muslim intellectuals attempting to envision an Islamic economy. So for me, immediately, I mean, this is interesting because this is precisely what you're not supposed to, to do. Um, 
And it also was interesting because sort of work on Islamic economics um, has tended to focus on the late 20th century and mostly on either um, the Middle East or sometimes on on Malaysia, um, but not really, I mean, what very few people had really written about this, these writings in the 1930s, 1940s in um, colonial India, um, in which um, scholars start to talk about um, the possibility of um, an Islamic economy. And I think what I was also interested in is that, again, you know, the, the sort of late 20th century version of Islamic economics tends to sort of focus on questions of, of finance. Um, whereas I think, um, and it's, it's a pretty technical field, whereas what's happening in the early 20th century is a sort of much broader, I think, deeper engagement with questions of social justice and that envisioning an Islamic economy is a way to think about alternative um, forms of economic justice that on the one hand sort of reject the inequality of the capitalist system, but are also sort of suspicious of the rising influence of, of communism and, and are trying to kind of think about, um, you know, an alternative um, and, and kind of look to is Islamic uh, concepts as, as potentially offering kind of um, different ways of, of thinking about um, the relationship between um, the economy and, and the state and of sort of individual actors and, and morality. And so I, I think I was really interested in, in that because I think um, it, you know, not only kind of plays a role in my book by kind of showing how Muslims started to kind of push back against the logic of colonial secularism, but I think in the kind of field of Islamic studies is, is also important because it sort of provides a different genealogy um, for the history of, of Islamic economics that really centers um, South Asia. Um, I mean, incidentally, um, you know, the fact that the, the question of, of debt has become central, a central one for Islamic economics. Um, you know, I think also has a kind of side history in the fact that um, the 1930s are a period in which um, debt is sort of the preeminent kind of economic question in, in colonial India. So I sort of, you know, wonder whether the reason that debt becomes important for Islamic economics or is as important as it, it does um, is, is partially also linked to the kind of history of, of India and the fact that, you know, some of the early writings to kind of be published on the topic um, in a kind of modern sense of, of the use of the term Islamic economics are really coming out of, of India in, in the 1930s. And, and this is happening in a variety of different parts of India, but um, Hyderabad is sort of particularly important. Um, some of the kind of most important early figures who are writing about Islamic economics and Islamic social justice are um, writing in the princely state of, of Hyderabad. So for people who are not South Asianists, um, Hyderabad is the largest of the sort of um, uh, variety of different princely states that sort of maintain a degree of independence um, under the kind of broad suzerainty of the, the British. And I think the fact that Hyderabad is, is so important to the emergence of, of these ideas is also sort of a good place to start to talk about sort of what happens um, to these ideas, which is that largely um, they do not um, come to fruition. They don't really have a, 
a political future. And um, this is because if we look at Hyderabad, Hyderabad is forcibly integrated into India in, in 1948. Some of the um, writers um, who are working out of Hyderabad end up fleeing. Some of them become sort of stateless refugees. Um, others end up in, in Pakistan, but also, you know, they were never really part of the Pakistan project, so they don't really fit in, in Pakistan very well either. So they're kind of politically and intellectually marginalized. And then there is this sort of moment in in Pakistan in which there is a kind of real interest in Islamic social justice while Pakistan is attempting to to write a constitution in the late 1940s, early 1950s. But again, in the end, it doesn't really become a major part of the the sort of um, political project in in Pakistan. And I think it's because, um, you know, these were ideas that were still very much sort of in the conceptual stages. And there is an enormous sense of kind of urgency in that immediate post-colonial moment in which there really isn't time um, and resources to sort of um, try to engage in a kind of more experimental and more ambitious kind of uh, political and economic project of kind of fundamental um, rethinking um, sort of um, society. But I, I think that I kind of remain really interested in these ideas because I think, you know, just because they didn't have a kind of immediate future um, in, in their kind of um, in the years after their kind of initial intellectual conception, I think doesn't mean that they're not sort of, they don't have an ongoing relevance. And I, I would like to see these earlier writer writings more acknowledged, more widely read, and I think may actually have a sort of um, relevance to kind of um, current political discussions in which, um, you know, I think demands for social justice, um, you know, are you know, almost universal across, I mean, not just the Muslim world, obviously, but, you know, if you look at moments like the Arab Spring, I think the idea of social justice is often something that can kind of bridge the divide between Islamists and more secular parties. And I think that kind of um, bringing um, sort of the, the, the mix of, of these ideas into contemporary um, political discussions could be really um, kind of enriching and, and provide a kind of alternative genealogy, not just for sort of Islamic economics, but kind of visions of Islamic um, governance, which so often today are sort of narrowly seen as sort of a particular version of um, sort of Islamist, um, Islamic state um, ideology, which is, is, is pr- pretty narrowly conceived. In the, in the chapter previous to that, which you discussed a little bit um, already, uh, kind of gets at some of these tensions that begin um, to emerge between Hindu majority and Muslim minorities um, and their kind of antecedents in British colonial attitudes or kind of depictions of, of Muslims. Um, and in the introduction and the conclusion, then you kind of talk a little bit about um, how your your work can kind of help us think about the present. And um, I mean, a whole lot has happened since the book has been published. Um, I, I, I don't know where you want to take it and what you might be uh, willing to, to discuss, but I would imagine that we can learn a lot about uh, right now um, from thinking about this kind of longer historical trajectory. So maybe maybe I'll just kind of pose it that way. And then, uh, yeah. So what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. So I think, 
you know, it's been interesting um, to over the last couple of years um, to kind of think about the book in terms of current affairs, but also, you know, to do that in in conversation with um, readers. And I think one thing which I've sort of been surprised about is I think some people have sort of read my book and and maybe been disappointed that I didn't offer solutions, um, that I sort of present this kind of um, pretty pessimistic story about sort of both the kind of deep flaws in secular governance and it's kind of incredibly um, credible perseverance. And, and I don't really offer a solution to that problem. But I think as a historian, I don't really see my role as offering sort of policy solutions. I think instead, I'm a historian who is deeply engaged with the present in that I think that history might allow us to kind of reframe our understanding of the present and to kind of think more critically about it. So I think in in this respect, I mean, one of the things that I think my book can bring to sort of contemporary events, both in in India and in in Pakistan and and Bangladesh, um, is to see the ways in which groups that appear to be acting as alternatives to secularism, whether they be Hindutva or Islamists in Pakistan or Bangladesh, that actually often they share a lot of affinities with some of the most problematic aspects of of secular governance. Um, So, for example, I mentioned earlier um, in our discussion uh, the Muslim Women Protection of Rights on Marriage Bill. This is the bill that was passed last summer, 2019, um, that criminalizes triple talaq. And, you know, when you look at this bill, if you look at it, I think, through the lens of my book, it's, it's hard not to see the way in which it is so reminiscent of what Gayatri Spivak would have called white men saving brown women from brown men, except for in this case, Hindu men are claiming to save Muslim women from Muslim men. And so I think, you know, we have to kind of look at the ways in which um, Hindutva, rather than sort of a reaction to secularism in South Asia, I think is actually sort of deeply entangled uh, with it and sort of reproduces some of the ways in which um, Muslims are sort of scapegoated, um, which, um, you know, has kind of deeper roots in in sort of the history of of secularism. And I think similarly, you know, in in Pakistan, if you look at sort of Islamist uh, calls for um, blasphemy laws, um, you know, one of the things I show is that the sort of Zia's blasphemy laws, um, you know, really are just grafted onto the Indian penal code um, and sort of colonial attitudes about sort of religious sentiment. And so again, you know, what is purportedly a reaction of Islamists against secularism is in fact sort of reproducing some of its kind of most uh, malignant elements. And so I think in kind of um, political debates in South Asia, in which there seems to kind of be only these sort of you know, binary alternatives, you know, is it sort of religious, a religious state or religious majoritarianism or secularism? I'm trying to say, like, I think we need to kind of think, you know, beyond that, um, because 
those, um, you know, those seeming alternatives are not actually alternatives, that they actually sort of share all of these kind of genealogical um, uh, overlap. And, and I don't have a kind of like canned version of, you know, what is that, that alternative. But I think what my book is trying to do is sort of push us to, to, to think sort of more radically about um, ways in which law, um, you know, could, could be fundamentally um, different. And that these binaries um, that seem to kind of be reproduced over and over again, that we could kind of think of, um, you know, a, a way in which we can sort of engage with politics and, and religion that that tries to kind of work um, beyond those those binary oppositions. Um, you know, I, it's it's hard not to kind of think about the, the current moment in which we're having this conversation in which, you know, I think with kind of the world, um, you know, already radically transformed um, by the coronavirus and the kind of economic fallout that, you know, I, I think the time I talk about the book in the kind of way in which like you have to kind of work um, the trap that, that you're in. Um, and I think we're maybe in a moment in which I'm starting to feel like if we just keep working this trap, that, we, that maybe it will break because there's so much sort of pressure, I think, on existing systems that, um, you know, even compared to a year ago, even at a moment that seems so sort of terrifying, that maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic that we're actually, you know, that we've like pushed society to the breaking point and that, you know, we might be at a point in which some of these kind of persistent patterns could actually kind of be broken and move into different directions. Well, Julia, it's a, it's a really wonderful book, and I think um, it's both uh, illuminating for the kind of longer history, but I think it really does help us think about the present too. So, con- congratulations on a great book. I'm wondering if you, if you don't mind sharing, um, letting us know a little bit about the things you're working on now. Yeah, so I'm actually I'm working on a new um, book which is looking at diasporic South Asian uh, families and what happens um, when members of those families pass uh, away. And so it's really a book that is is trying to understand the experience of mobility and sort of its relationship with with family through the lens of of death and inheritance. And so it it like my first book, I I use a lot of legal archives, but I would say that in my new project, I'm I mean I've oh you can tell in my book I'm I'm really interested in in people and the kind of like, you know, rich kind of earthiness and complexity of like people's lives and I think in my new work, I'm kind of, um, you know, moving even further in that direction. Um, and I think, whereas with my first book, I work a lot with sort of upper level legal records, appellate courses, courses that kind of mattered for legal history. In this new project, I'm really digging into the kind of like refuse of the legal system, like course, cases that didn't even go anywhere. Sometimes, you know, legal paperwork that's filed that a, a case never even happens. Um, I'm looking at a whole series of sort of um, forms in which when indentured laborers passed away, the sort of meager property that they was found on their bodies was sort of written down. So this is part of kind of legal bureaucracy, but, but I mean, rarely did court cases um, end up, you know, happening over what, you know, often we're talking about a pair of like copper bangles. Um, and so I think that shift is sort of continuing my interest in, in sort of thinking about um, law as an area in which we can think about the experience and ideas of a broader swath of, of, of people, but, but pulling that kind of even kind of deeper into sort of groups that are, that are really sort of non-elite. So I think you can certainly see like 
continuities between my first and, and, and second books. But I think also as a kind of narrative project, um, the, the second book is going to gonna look different. It's um, the stories which are there in the, the first book are really going to come front and, and center. And I'm really hoping that the, the second book, um, which is tentatively entitled Worldly Afterlives, um, you know, I'm really thinking about it, um, you know, certainly, hopefully of, of interest to scholars as well, but also to a more general audience. And I'm now based in New Jersey, which has a huge South Asian diasporic population. Many of my students at Rutgers, um, you know, are first or second generation um, South Asian Americans. And, you know, I think I want to kind of engage those communities that are, you know, part of really a kind of vibrant part of my life um, now. And so I'm writing the book, you know, not just for my colleagues in academia, but also, you know, for my students and, and neighbors. Um, who are part and also my family. My husband is a, a first Asian, first generation South Asian American. Um, you know, for for those people um, in in my life. Yeah, well, it sounds like a great project and uh, one thank certainly you. that uh, I, I'd like to read. So, I look forward to it. Well, thank you so much for um, having this conversation um, with me. It's been really fun to reflect on on the book. That was my conversation with Julia Stevens about governing Islam, law, empire, and secularism in modern South Asia, published with Cambridge University Press in 2018. Stay safe, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.